Welcome to Medicine the Truth, one of four weekly podcasts in our Fixing Healthcare series. I'm Jeremy Core, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine Podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author and professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, continues to receive industry-wide praise. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Information on a range of medical topics can be found on his website, robertperlmd.com. Robbie, listeners are enjoying this blend of the latest in medicine combined with ongoing updates on COVID-19. But given how many general healthcare stories there are, let's start with a couple of them. Maybe one positive and one negative. Jeremy, let me begin with the positive one. On our last Medicine the Truth episode, we talked about ChatGPT and how rapidly it was impacting the world, including healthcare. Since then, the application and the entire generative AI industry have continued to explode. As we predicted, there's an accelerating arms race amongst big tech companies, and the battles, they're raging. Listeners may remember that when we told them last time that ChatGTP had passed the licensing exam that doctors are required to take, that it passed with a relatively low score. The new generative AI application from Google, the company calls it MedPalm2, it just passed the exam as well, but this time with a score of 85%, which would put it at the expert doctor level. And almost immediately after that, OpenAI, the company that created ChatGPT, released its next version that it calls GPT-4. Included in the application are video and image capabilities that we discussed would help transform medical care in the future. Jeremy, the pace of improvement is mind-boggling. And consistent with what we said in the last Medicine of the Truth, although GPT-4 is far superior to the original chat GPT, it too isn't ready to replace doctors yet. The application, brilliant at times, still makes too many medical errors. As such, any diagnoses or treatments that are recommended need to be reviewed by a physician for accuracy and the medical applicability. But as we also said on the last show, by a decade from now, these applications, the generative AI applications, they're going to be vastly more powerful than today. Moore's Law estimates the technology advances at a rate that doubles every Two years. Assuming that holds, a decade from now, the generative AI available will be 30 times more powerful than today. By two decades, a thousand times more powerful. The genie is out of the bottle. Anyone who believes we can go back doesn't understand the arc of technology, be it in the world of computers or generative AI. The future is very bright when it comes to this technology being able to empower patients and help doctors to provide safer, higher quality medical care. In contrast, the newest data on women dying from childbirth is distressing. The recently reported maternal mortality rate in the United States, 33 deaths per 100,000 live births. This is the worst rate 
since 1965. Let me repeat, the worst rate in the past 60 years. In total, 1,305 women died in 2021 simply from having a baby. Poor clinical outcomes in the United States when it comes to maternal deaths have become the rule, not an anomaly. In fact, the United States is the only nation in the economically advantaged world to have maternal death rates rising. 743 mothers died in 2019. 861 deaths in 2020, and now 1,305 deaths in 2021. And for Black mothers, the chance of dying from childbirth is an astronomical 70 women per 100,000 live births. Jeremy, our performance isn't just poor, it's embarrassing. But going back to the positive changes that have happened, let me ask you, Jeremy, as a patient, how comfortable would you be getting medical information from a generative AI application like ChatGPT or subsequent generations? Robbie, I feel like I've had a proven track record and was trusted by doctors, and my physician reviewed and agreed with the medical information I was receiving, I'd be totally fine with it. What about just getting the information directly at those times that you can't consult with your physician? I think my biggest concern in that situation would be, am I asking it the right questions? Because I think of, you know, every time somebody looks on WebMD or something like that, because they have a, a hurt finger or, you know, anything, people are convinced, you know, they have cancer or something much more serious than what they have. And then they sit there and worry about it until they have, you know, actual conversations with their doctor. So I think the big concern with that would be, are the patients asking ChatGPT the right questions that they wouldn't necessarily know to ask? Robbie, what else has happened in medicine recently? Jeremy, on this podcast, we've talked about the lengths to which drug companies will go to protect the monopolistic market control and generate exorbitant profits. I recently read the details of an approach that even I could never imagine. Jazz Pharmaceuticals manufactures an incredibly profitable narcolepsy drug. It's generated $13 billion in revenue since the company acquired the rights in 2005. And it now accounts for 58% of the company's total revenue. The annual cost per patient for this drug now exceeds $200,000 a year. It's currently 19 times as expensive as it was in 2007. And remember, the company hasn't had to invest any more dollars in R&D. Although the drug is helpful for patients with narcolepsy, one problem with the drug is that it also can be used for date rape. Rather than tightly controlling who purchased the drug to prevent the medication from falling into the hands of individuals planning to use it for illegal purposes, the company seized on the opportunity to delay competition. The solution the company put in place to reduce abuse used the single national pharmacy to send the medication directly to patients. And then it patented the safety program. And the safety program it created favored the company's medication 
forcing competitors to first challenge that patent around safety in order to get their new, less expensive, but more effective generic drugs into circulation. And that added step, delayed approval of the competitor's products by two years. Ultimately, Jazz lost in court, but during the period of delay, the company raked in huge profits. The current drug pricing and patent systems are broken, forcing patients to purchase more expensive and often less effective medications. Across the drug industry, these restrictions raise total healthcare costs without adding clinical value. But given the baby steps that Congress has been willing to take relative to addressing exorbitant drug pricing, I worry, Jeremy, that real improvement isn't likely to happen anytime soon. Robbie, a couple of months ago, the triple-demic was a big story. We heard at that time about potential vaccines against RSV to go along with the COVID and flu shots. What's new? Jeremy, although the risks from respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, have vanished from headlines as the prevalence of the virus has diminished, there now is a vaccine that's received initial endorsement for adults over the age of 60 by the FDA's Biological Products Advisory Committee. Based on research from 34,000 patients, half of whom received the vaccine and half a placebo, the vaccine appears to reduce the risk of illness by 86%. And given that 160,000 adults are hospitalized with the virus in the United States each year, that could be life-saving. However, at the same time, among clinical experts, there remains concern about a reaction to the virus that can lead to paralysis. The FDA will need to examine and consider this risk before giving final approval, and approval for use in children is likely to be delayed even longer. Robbie, as usual, what's this episode's newest piece of information relative to kids? Jeremy, as with maternal mortality, here too, the most recent data is quite problematic. The annual mortality rate for kids 18 and under jumped by 20% from 2019 to 2021. Deaths per 100,000 boys in this age group went up to 38.7, and for girls, it rose to 20.8. These high mortality statistics are similar to where the United States was a full decade ago. Many people assume medical outcomes are improving for kids. Like the maternal mortality data, these findings demonstrate that progress has been minimal or not at all. To put this information in perspective, the recent leap in the number of deaths in kids is the largest increase in the past 50 years, according to an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Researchers attributed the high numbers to a combination of homicides, drug overdoses, motor vehicle accidents, and suicide amongst kids ages 10 to 19. Moreover, the data includes both an 11% increase in the number of deaths in 2020, which was the first year they studied, and an additional 8.3% rise in 2021, the second year data was collected. As such, the massive increase in deaths can't be explained by a one-year statistical aberration. The authors concluded bullets, drugs, and automobiles 
have become the most virulent pathogens for kids in our current society. And there's little reason to think that the current numbers won't continue to rise. Robbie, let's go back to the issue of exorbitant drug pricing by drug manufacturers. I read that Eli Lilly had lowered its price for insulin. Why did they do it? And what does that mean for patients? The short answer, Jeremy, is that Eli Lilly did agree to reduce the price of insulin and cap the patient's out-of-pocket costs at $35. And the two other U.S. manufacturers of insulin are following suit although their prices will be around $48 per vial. But Jeremy, the entire area of drug prices and insulin specifically is far more complex than the announcements made at the time and less magnanimous than manufacturers would like you to believe. Remember, under the Inflation Reduction Act, out-of-pocket costs for insulin for Medicare beneficiaries who, by the way, account for the majority of insulin users, it's already capped at $35. And when it comes to people needing insulin who are under that age, quite a number enrolled in Medicaid, where the rules on drug pricing are restrictive for the maximal prices that can be charged. As a result, critics have pointed out that this so-called price reduction could actually save the manufacturer's money. Under current legislation, when prices rise, Faster than inflation, manufacturers must give rebates to Medicaid for the excess dollars charged. And insulin manufacturers fall into this category. In fact, it's estimated that by lowering their price for insulin, Eli Lilly would avoid penalties that are estimated to be in the $430 million range. And for a second manufacturer, they too would save $350 million a year. Add to that the reality that a reduction in price will probably result in more insulin being sold as people who today ration it and use less insulin than the doctors recommend will buy more. And suddenly the motivation of the company, meaning Eli Lilly, becomes suspect. And two more points. First, the reduced price announced only applies to Eli Lilly's older insulin products with newer versions still priced exorbitantly high. And finally, remember, there's other drugs that the company wants to bring to market for which it will need regulatory approval. A full-blown war with the president who made lowering insulin prices a major part of his State of the Union and a healthcare Senate committee chaired by Bernie Sanders who has made this a huge issue. That could delay time to market for these new multi-billion dollar opportunities. When the company's CEO was asked about these financial issues, he refused to comment. Can you expand on drug pricing overall? Sure. You know, adding to the confusion about the impact this announcement will have on drug company profits, there's the complete lack of transparency on drug costs. The relationship between so-called list prices and what insurers pay versus out-of-pocket for patients, all of that detail, it's hidden. We know there's a huge difference between the list price and what PBMs, these are the pharmacy benefit managers, negotiate on behalf of insurance. And there's no data on how much of the rebates 
and the incentive dollars that drug companies give PBMs end up in the hands of patients versus the pocketbooks of the PBMs themselves. These middlemen likely siphon off a huge amount of dollars that could have been used to reduce costs to patients. And often they work with drug manufacturers to first raise the list price, then they give insurers discounts in return for keeping these expensive medications on the formularies. And the result is that patients end up paying more out-of-pocket since out-of-pocket costs are usually calculated as a percentage of list price, not negotiated price. To make sure drug companies don't play fast and loose, California Governor Gavin Newsom promised to spend $50 million to fund a drug company, Civica Rx, in order to produce biosimilars for insulin equivalent to the three products currently prescribed for patients, and then promised to price them at $30 a vial, less than the prices promised currently for the drug companies. And for cash-paying individuals, these biosimilar insulins, they would save the individuals between $2,000 and $4,000 annually compared to today. Of interest, the state of California approach for funding a manufacturer to keep prices low will also be used to manufacture naloxone, a life-saving medication that reverses drug overdoses, but one that's currently too expensive for people to purchase and have on hand when respiratory failure secondary to opioids occurs. Jeremy, currently over a million Americans say they ration the insulin they take due to inability to afford the cost. Overall, one in seven people who must inject insulin for their diabetes spend over 40% of their total income on the medication after paying for food and housing, according to a study published in Health Affairs. As I said at the beginning, this entire issue is very complex and highly problematic. Let me ask you, Jeremy, you are both a patient and a businessman. What do you see as Congress's role in making medications affordable for Americans? Robbie, I think Congress should absolutely regulate and prevent drug manufacturers from price gouging consumers. That being said, due to the lobbying power of the pharmaceutical industry, I have very little faith that this will happen in a way that keeps truly and honestly the consumer's best interests at heart. Robbie, I've heard that the rate of colon cancer among younger individuals is going up rapidly. What's going on? Jeremy, you're absolutely right. The United States has been a, has seen a surge in the incidence of colon cancer in younger individuals. Among people who develop colon cancer, our nation has experienced an increase from 11% to 20% for people 55 years and younger. And 60% of those cancers happen in younger individuals. Researchers have not yet figured out why this change is occurring. Moreover, among people 50 and under, 13% of cases and 7% of deaths occur. You know, remember, until recently, doctors didn't even screen people under the age of 50. The most Current research shows that colon cancer 
is very much related to environmental factors, including diet, smoking, and alcohol consumption. As a result, what we see is that the rate of colon cancer is 27 deaths per 100,000 people in Utah, where smoking and alcohol consumption is the lowest, while the mortality rate was nearly twice as high, 46 cases per 100,000 in Mississippi. As a result of this new data, screening, either by colonoscopy or using a FIT test, a procedure that patients can do in the comfort of their home without the need for a bowel prep. These approaches, one or the other, is now recommended not only for patients over 50, but also those between 45 and 50 years of age. Robbie, several listeners heard that there was renewed debate on the origin of the COVID-19 pandemic, and they asked us to provide more information on the alternative viewpoints. Jeremy, the debate focuses on two possibilities. On one side, there are those scientists who believe that the virus spread from an infected animal or animals at the Wuhan wet market after becoming infected from a bat. And then on the other side, you have people who believe that the origin was a laboratory mistake related to coronavirus researchers at the Virus Research Laboratory in Wuhan. And there's scientific support for both sides. Overall, I'd say the wild animal theory has more supporters as recent genetic evidence published in Nature demonstrates that COVID was present in some of the stalls where the animals were kept which would be unlikely to happen except through an infected animal. And there's no evidence that the research facility in Wuhan was studying a coronavirus with a genetic makeup even closely resembling the one we saw in COVID-19. But on the other hand, it's also strange that this specific coronavirus infection would begin in such close proximity to the one laboratory studying coronavirus without there being a connection between the two. I want to point out for listeners that nearly all researchers in the U.S. doubt that the virus is part of any type of biological warfare research. And similarly, the idea that scientists are promoting from China that the virus was brought into the country, that too is highly unlikely to be the origin. But with the Chinese government data on viral infection of researchers in the Wuhan lab early in the pandemic unavailable, it's likely that we'll never know which of these two theories is correct. In both cases, however, criticism can and should be placed on lax oversight by Chinese authorities. Prior to the pandemic, there were concerns about the laboratory safety in the Wuhan research facility and major concerns about having live wild animals in proximity to thousands of people in the marketplace. The debate over the origin of the virus has been reignited for two reasons. The first is that the US Department of Energy released a report that concluded with what it labeled low confidence, however, that the lab leak theory had greater validity than the wild animal to human transmission concept. This is the first time anyone in the American government has offered this perspective. But simultaneously, as we noted, other researchers researchers have found strong genetic evidence tying the virus to raccoon dogs 
and the cages they were kept in at the wet market. At this point, it's unlikely this debate will ever be resolved to everyone's satisfaction. Probably a listener found the acquisitions of One Medical and Oak Street, two of the nation's largest primary care medical groups, interesting. He wanted to know what Walmart, the third retail giant you talk about, was doing. Jeremy, similar to CVS, Walmart is wanting to gain market share in Medicare Advantage. Its partnership with United Health will bring millions of Medicare Advantage members into their stores, and they will have committed to nearly doubling the number of in-store medical clinics that they provide. They're expected to add 28 additional health clinics this year with primary care, behavioral health, vision services, and dental care. Although each of the big three, Amazon, CVS, and Walmart, are acquiring the pieces needed to displace much of the medical system as it currently exists, each is having to decide whether to build or buy, with all likely to do a combination of both. And expanding Walmart's opportunities is the recent acquisition for $5 billion by United Health of LHC, a massive home health provider. To compete effectively in the Medicare Advantage space, this is the capitated prepaid form of Medicare, a company needs to be able to reduce total hospital days and be able to capture all of a patient's diagnoses. Home health services assist with both. Patient safety is a high priority for our nation. What's being done to improve it? As you know, Jeremy, for decades, black boxes have been used to improve aviation safety. Whenever there's an accident, the recorded information is used to analyze data and determine what could have been done to prevent the crash. Now video is being used in operating rooms during surgery for the same purpose. It's likely that over time, AI will be applied broadly in hospitals for this purpose. Already an OR black box system of sensors and software has been used to capture extensive information through video, audio, vital sign monitors, and data from surgical devices in two dozen hospitals across the United States, including three surgical rooms at the Mayo Clinic. This technology has been applied both to minimize medical errors and improve operative efficiency. Rather than relying on doctors' and nurses' memory and their subjective perspectives, the technology allows operative teams to review their efforts and make adjustments similar to football teams that study tape from the previous week's game. Let me ask you, Jeremy, this black box approach makes sense from the perspective of maximizing operative safety. But as a patient, how do you feel about having your privacy potentially compromised by recording a procedure being done on your body? Robbie, I had mixed feelings on it. On one hand, it makes me a little uncomfortable having my body uh, recorded while at its most vulnerable. But at the same time, I see value in it if it's being done for learning reference material for other physicians. If I was asked if a procedure being done on me could be recorded, I would honestly have to think long and hard about it. Robbie, in our last Medicine, the Truth episode, you talked about new recommendations around childhood obesity. Several listeners were interested in more information. What's happened since then? Jeremy, in medicine, two things can be true, yet they can contradict each other. Emotional debates in the medical world 
demonstrate this reality and offer cautions for the future. Childhood obesity is such a topic. When it comes to childhood obesity, everyone understands the challenges that exist and the lifelong and painful impact obesity can have both psychologically and physically. So the idea of addressing the problem early and treating it as a medical disease, that's attractive. As a consequence, as we discussed last time, a pediatric committee recommended extensive family counseling in children under the age of five, along with administration of the newer injectable drugs like Ozempic once weekly to kids as early as age 12, and bariatric surgery being offered to teenagers. But as logical as that approach seems, other experts want to know why. If childhood obesity is a disease, why has its prevalence grown so quickly over the past few decades? Clearly, human genomics haven't changed to any degree. And if the reason for the surge is an external factor, they question whether it wouldn't be better to focus on that factor rather than administering a drug whose long-term side effects aren't known or subject a teenager to a surgical procedure with potentially major complications. Furthermore, some people question whether obesity is actually a disease or instead mainly a social bias. And if teasing is the reason to recommend treatment, why don't we just force every child with a cosmetic feature that deviates from what society views as beautiful to undergo surgical modification? These critics note that overweight individuals can be healthy without any medical conditions, such as diabetes or cardiovascular problems, and that not every five or 12-year-old with excess weight will end up with a weight-related problem as an adult. And then there are the skeptics who point out that most of the members of the committee that developed these recommendations, they came from programs that would benefit financially if these recommendations were followed, since many of their institutions offer these very complex, very expensive services, including extensive counseling and bariatric procedures. And they also question the role that drug companies that manufacture the new class of drugs may have since these medications that are priced at $1,000 a month and need to be taken for life to avoid regaining the excess weight would clearly increase the bottom line. Recommending this treatment for 5% of kids, which is what the committee decided, translates into billions of dollars for drug manufacturers. In addition, some eating disorder experts fear that early labeling of kids as having an obesity disease could produce even greater weight stigma and lead to a rise in eating disorders that already impact one in five teenagers, particularly girls. And finally, the positive data the committee had on long-term complications in children from these surgical and drug treatments that worries critics of the committee's recommendations. As I said at the start, it's true we have an obesity epidemic, but which is better, approaching the problem as a disease using a medical model or addressing it as a social issue tied to poor access to healthy foods, TV advertising, and processed sugar? That remains unclear. And most importantly in the long run, will treatment be worse than the problem 
or better. We'll have to see. Robert, do you see this duality in other areas of medicine? Absolutely, Jeremy. Alzheimer's disease is another great example. This type of progressive dementia is terrifying for individuals and families. It's overwhelming to watch loved ones drift into a mental state where they no longer can recognize where they are or even who you are. And there are tantalizing clues as to its basis and potential treatment using medications that reduce amyloid plaque, a radiologic finding associated with this devastating disease. But research on how much benefit these drugs are that decrease plaque can have and their cl overall clinical safety, that's as much a matter of perspective as science. For people in the early stages of the disease and their families, time is of the essence. Once memories are lost, it's unlikely they'll ever be recovered. For this reason, families are anxious to try any treatment that offers even the most minimal ray of hope. But for many doctors and scientists, the idea of administering medications with horrific side effects, they see it as problematic. And they believe these drugs should be further tested before being made broadly available. Most recently, the FDA approved a second drug designed to reduce amyloid plaque in patients with Alzheimer's disease. This time, the evidence for some benefit was better than it had been for the first medication, the problems of which we discussed in a prior episode. As you remember, when it came to the first drug, approval was opposed by the FDA's expert advisory panel. And in fact, the company that manufactured that medication had abandoned clinical trials based upon the initial data a year before the FDA approval was given. And the approval came through the agency's very controversial accelerated approval process. But when you dive deeper and get beyond the hype and press releases, what you see is that the likelihood of the second medication making a major difference for patients, that evidence is minimal at best. Yes, the drug helps on a statistical basis, but the impact is far from impressive. So here we are, once again, back in that same duality as we saw in the obesity example. On one hand, you have families desperate to do anything, no matter how little difference it will make. On the other hand, you have a treatment with major risks and little evidence it will be a long-term solution. And in both cases, billions of dollars and tremendous societal pressure is being brought to bear, the combination makes any conclusion sus suspect. When it comes to childhood obesity, the unanswered question is whether we should view the problem through a medical disease or a societal lens. If changes in food that make high caloric meals and snacks attractive are causing 40% of Americans to be obese, shouldn't we start there and apply a public health mindset? When it comes to Alzheimer's disease, the unanswered question is, how do we separate hope from reality? Jeremy, medicine tries to be scientific and it focuses on statistical probability. But healthcare resides in societal and human context. And as a nation, we do poorly at making the best choices when politics, fear, or money enter the picture.
Robbie, any final thoughts? Jeremy, we're at a pivotal moment in medical history. Our nation spends 20% of our gross domestic product on healthcare. Phrased differently, when you look at everything Americans spend, including the dollars they use for housing, food, transportation, education, and safety, including fire and police, one in every $5 goes to healthcare. And yet our healthcare outcomes lag 12 other wealthy nations and are a little better than they were two decades in the past. There are many things our country could do to prevent disease and avoid complications from chronic problems like diabetes, hypertension, lung disease. And many of these approaches would be far better and far less expensive for people's health and life expectancy. The American healthcare system is perverse in that the solutions which are most cost-effective failed to be our focus because they're not as profitable for the people and companies providing them. Jeremy, I don't think anyone would design the American healthcare system as it is currently structured, including how it's organized and funded. And the system increasingly frustrates doctors, nurses, and patients. None of us would tolerate the inconvenience and lack of modern information technology in any other aspect of our lives, the way we accept it in healthcare. Imagine calling a retailer about a problem and find that none of the information needed to resolve the issue is available electronically. Imagine wanting to eat a meal or take a trip, and there's no way to find out the price you'll need to pay for weeks or months later. We know that our country would be far better off investing a lot more resources at the start of a person's life and less at the end. We'd be much happier if we focused on maximizing health, not just reversing disease. And yet, like Sisyphus, every time we try pushing healthcare's metaphorical rock up the hill, before we get to the top, it rolls back down and we find ourselves not having made any progress. As a physician, Jeremy, I believe that making investments in our health is one of the best decisions our nation can make. I also think we should be getting much more for our money. And I'm increasingly worried that if anything, the problems of today are going to get worse. Let's plan to dive into these issues in a future episode of Fixing Healthcare. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthcarePodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, and have a great day.